1: From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, I'm Austin Cross Infrared Martinez, and this is Take Two. Happy Thursday to you. Coming up, we'll check in on the border and look at one of the major issues driving Central Americans, mostly children, north. That's climate change, and that's just ahead. But first to the big political story of the day. This morning, the Senate confirmed the nomination of California's Attorney General Javier Becerra to lead the Department of Health and Human Services. Now, Becerra will be the first Latino to run HHS when he is sworn in, likely within the next week or so. And that means there will be a pretty important job opening up here very soon. Governor Gavin Newsom will be appointing a new AG to lead the state's Department of Justice. KPCC's Libby Dankman is here to break down that decision for us. Hey, Libby. Hey, Austin. Well, Libby Javier Becerra is headed to a cabinet position in the Biden administration. But before we dig into everything that he's going to face, can we take a moment to talk about what his time as attorney general has actually meant for California?
0: Well, progressives in California really wanted the state to be the center of the resistance against President Trump's agenda. And as attorney general over the past four plus years, Becerra was their standard bearer. He was out front on fights over environmental regulations, immigration policy, health care and more. He filed over 100 lawsuits against the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And uh, the best known battles will probably be uh, over the Affordable Care Act, which the Trump administration sought to weaken and entirely repeal. Appeal. As HHS Secretary, of course, Becerra is expected to run point on expanding the ACA with a public option, when a President Biden's campaign promises. As attorney general in California, Becerra also won a landmark settlement against a big hospital group in Northern California, Sutter Health, that was accused of price fixing. At HHS, he will be overseeing Medicare and Medicaid, the Food and Drug Administration and the Centers for Disease Control. So clearly, Austin, that's a key job as the country is still fighting the COVID-19 pandemic and Biden is trying to meet big vaccine rollout goals.
1: Well, what are some of the factors that Governor Newsom is weighing? Because I know that when Jerry Brown chose him years ago, there is a different kind of criteria that he was looking at. What are some of the things that he's weighing as he looks to replace Becerra?
0: Absolutely. One issue that progressives would have liked to see Becerra more involved with is criminal justice reform. They say Becerra's office dragged its feet on releasing records of police misconduct, and he declined to take a position on statewide rules for police body cameras, which was something his predecessor, Vice President Kamala Harris, was also criticized for. Uh, Becerra has also generally defaulted to allowing local prosecutors to determine if police shootings are justified, like in the case of Andreas Guardado, who was shot and killed by sheriff's deputies last year in south la he declined to have the justice department monitor that investigation but he did launch a civil rights investigation into the la county sheriff's department earlier this year and his office is looking into how lapd may have falsified records to enter people into the cal gang database unfairly big picture austin Criminal justice reform has been a signature issue for Governor Newsom, and a new law requires the state's attorney general to investigate every time a law enforcement agency shoots and kills an unarmed civilian in California. So the expectation is that for the next AG, Newsom will be looking for someone who can really take a leading role on those efforts.
1: We're talking to KPCC's Libby Dankman here on Take Two. Libby, who are the top contenders for the AG job right now?
0: Well, I want to start by saying that this is all speculation so far. I have no hard reporting or insight into the governor's choice, and Newsom is not talking yet. But here goes. Uh, Assemblyman Rob Bonta of Oakland is topping a Mm. lot of lists. He is one of the most progressive members of the Assembly, and he and Newsom have been allies on issues like trying to end cash bail and abolishing private prisons. He is the state's first Filipino-American legislator, and this comes at a time when there has been an uptick that we've been talking about on KPCC quite a bit about hate uh, crimes against Asian-Americans. And a prominent Asian-American appointee like this could really send a strong message of support to that community. Now, another name is Congressman Adam Schiff of Burbank. He's getting quite a bit of buzz. He's a former federal prosecutor and he has reportedly been eyeing a statewide role, either Attorney General or maybe an open Senate seat if Dianne Feinstein were to retire. The Wall Street Journal recently detailed a serious lobbying campaign by powerful Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi, who have appreciated Schiff's efforts uh, leading the impeachment uh, first time around. Also, his role investigating the Trump administration and the fundraising muscle that has come along with that larger profile in recent years. But I want to point out that Southern California advocates, including Black Lives Matter L.A., have said that Schiff is too conservative on law enforcement and public safety issues. They've cited his past support for the death penalty and other policy positions. And to round out that list, Austin, another interesting possibility is State Supreme Court Justice Goodwin Liu. You may remember about 10 years ago, he was an Obama nominee for the Ninth Circuit, but Republicans blocked him and later Governor Jerry Brown named him to the State Supreme Court. Now, he is an outspoken uh, uh, on issues of labor, uh, workers' rights. He's written majority opinions for big cases related to arbitration clauses and employment contracts. He's also known to be very progressive on criminal justice issues. He's written key opinions, for example, expanding Miranda rights for juveniles, and he's denounced the death penalty as costly and ineffective. So those are some of the names that are really on a lot of people's lists when we look at this attorney general spot.
1: Well, that's the great Libby Dankman. We're in wait and see mode right now, I guess. KPCC's senior politics reporter. Libby, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Thanks, Austin.
1: It has been a strange 12 months. I mean, strange is one word for it. Heartbreaking could easily be another. As we grapple with a year of pandemic life, we've asked faith leaders around Southern California to help us reflect on where we've been and where we're headed. Now, to do that, we've partnered with USC's Center for Religion and Civic Culture. And today we hear from Sundos Holoki. She's a chaplain at Hoag Hospital in Orange County, and her sermon is titled The Help of God
2: is near. In the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful. Serving as a health care and community chaplain, I have the immense honor to accompany our brothers and sisters in humanity in seeking to make sense out of suffering, pain, and crisis. Those in crisis may ask questions like, why is this happening to me? Or where's God in all of this? The most important gift we may provide to ourselves and others is a willingness to hold space for these questions. Rather than assume a lack of or instability in faith, can we begin to hear these questions as representing a process to interpret the crisis to regain direction. When the early Muslim community endured the burden of exile from their home in Mecca, they, according to the verse in the Quran, were touched by poverty and hardship and were shaken until their messenger and those who believed with him said, where is the help of God? The response to their verbalized suffering is immediate and striking. God responds to the believers enduring exile that, indeed, God's help is near. Not even an ayah or verse separates the question asked out of crisis from God's reassuring response. Unquestionably, the help of God is near. He who sends us the trials also sends us the tools and resources to overcome them. What I have learned in my ministry over the past year is that despite tremendous personal hardship, something deep within our souls yearn to know and grow closer to the most compassionate, We explored ways in which God revealed himself to us over this past year. We moved inward to consider our past and reprioritize for our future. We reflected on how we were never really in control as much as we thought we were or wanted to be. God says in the Quran, Knowledge of the hour belongs to God. It is he who sends down the relieving rain and he who knows what is hidden in the womb. No soul knows what it will reap tomorrow, and no soul knows in what land it will die. It is God who is all-knowing and all-aware. The unknown remains unknown for a reason, not for us to fear it, or assume the worst of it, but to recognize our humility in not knowing, not controlling such that we return to the one who does know who is in control we find healing and hope and exploring our questions together bearing witness to one another and clearing our mutual paths of the obstacles barring deeper connection to god this year We learned that a community may not always look like a large room filled to capacity, but could simply look like two souls in full presence of one another. I pray that the Most Gentle protects us all, showers us with His gentleness, mercy, and compassion, and that He reunites us in the best way in His perfect timing. Amen.
1: That was Sundos Halaki with her sermon, The Help of God is Near. You can read her text and that of several faith leaders in our community at crcc.usc.edu. You will see a report pinned to that main page titled Bridges Over Troubled Waters. We are back with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Austin Cross, in for A. Martinez. Now we turn to a situation that newly confirmed Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra will have to tackle right out of the gate. That's the influx of migrants, especially unaccompanied children trying to enter the United States. Now, just looking at some numbers from October through February, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol detained over 11,000 children who had crossed the border from Mexico into the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. It's a 114 percent increase compared to the same time last year. And There's been an uptick in San Diego, too, with Border Patrol agents apprehending almost 1,500 children. That is a 64 percent increase from the same time last year. Many of these children are from the Central American countries of Guatemala, Honduras and El Salvador. And many of them are trying to escape violence in their home countries. But there's also another reason that there's another crisis that's driving them north, too. That's climate change. NBC News and MSNBC correspondent Jacob Soboroff recently traveled to Guatemala with the World Food Program to look at how global warming has contributed to the crisis. He's with me now. Jacob, thank you for coming on.
3: Austin, it's really great to be with you. You know, I'm a hometown guy, born and raised here in L.A., so as they say in your business, longtime listener, first-time caller. Good to be on.
1: <laughs> That's always great. Well, Jacob, I saw your reporting, and it's one thing to read about it. It is another thing to see it. So tell us about the effect that climate change is having on Guatemala's agricultural industries and maybe even the effect that it's had on farmers and their families.
3: Sure. You know, if I could, just to zoom out a little bit, Um We've heard from the Biden administration that they're going to take a new approach. We remember that the Trump administration, um, how could anyone forget, uh, systematically and deliberately, cruelly separated thousands of migrant children from their parents at the border for the purposes of deterrence, scare people away uh, from coming to this country. Um, and they did that um, as their primary immigration enforcement uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, deterrence is not new. Deterrence is a decades long um philosophy that's been adopted by Democrats and Republicans in order to control who comes to the border uh, and when. But what the what the Trump administration had done was such a, a departure insofar as that cruelty was the center of it. And it, it basically virtually ignored everything about why people are coming um, and where they're coming from in favor of punishment uh, and punishment like we had never seen. And so when we talk about um, climate change as one of the push factors, the sending factors, and you're starting to hear the Biden administration say they want to address the push factors, um, it's central. You can't ignore it. And so what we saw um, when we went to Chiquimula and Zacapa in Guatemala um, is that it, climate change, climate variability um, are some of the primary factors behind the food insecurity, um, acute malnutrition, starvation, um, and really extreme poverty that are driving people Uh, to leave places like we were in and show up here on the southwest border. And it's worse now than it was when we were there because of the two hurricanes that hit over the course of the last year. And obviously the devastation wrought by COVID, which makes the situation, you know, even more complex.
1: I saw that you spoke to a man while you were there that said he knew at least 100 people who had tried to make the trip to the United States. And so I want to ask, how is all of this coming together and leading Guatemalans to send their children alone to make this really dangerous journey to the border.
3: You know, what I would say, Austin, is that nobody that you talk to uh, wants to send people um, to the United States. Everyone wants to stay in their home country. They want their families to stay together. Um, But when you're faced with literally a life or death situation, the village I was in, Las Sopas, um, with the World Food Program, five children had died uh, the year prior of malnutrition when I was there. And the World Food Program was basically administering um, a makeshift school and nutrition program uh, to the children in this community so that they could literally survive. And I talked to one mother who told me that I think it was her daughter or her son, I don't recall, um, had left to Philadelphia. And she was really clear with me. The reason is there's no work. And it's directly connected to this this fungus, this, this, this um, coffee leaf rust is what it's called, that has decimated the cash crop of the region, coffee. Uh, and without it, not only are is there no income uh, to make from the growing and selling of the coffee, but you don't have income to buy supplemental nutrition food, um, which forces people from their communities into the larger cities and ultimately uh, to the United States. You know, I, that number that you mentioned, hundred, at least 100 people who we knew who had made their way to the United States, I would venture to guess, um, based on data I'm seeing from the World Program now, that it's even more people uh, that have left to come here.
1: You know, early on, earlier on the show, we just spoke about Javier Becerra, who was just confirmed to head up the Department of Health and Human Services. And that, of course, is the agency that's tasked with housing and caring for migrant children while their cases are being processed. Is there any indication how he and a Biden administration might handle this now?
3: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it is so critical for now Secretary Becerra to be in his position at HHS because The reason you're seeing the backup along the border today, uh, children kept in what really is a humanitarian crisis at the border in these border patrol stations, Um, and by the way, the Secretary of Homeland Security acknowledges that himself. No child should be kept in a border patrol station, which is effectively a jail, is because there's a backup in the facilities run by HHS. Uh, The Office of Refugee Resettlement normally takes care and custody of unaccompanied migrant children who come to this country. But- they don't have capacity at the moment. And without a secretary for the past you know, nearly two months of the Biden administration, I cannot imagine that that hasn't complicated the situation. They need to find more space. They need to find it quickly. The Biden administration has called in FEMA in the interim uh, to get kids out of those border patrol stations. But it will ultimately be up to Secretary Becerra um, to expand capacity in, in health and human services facilities so these children can get an education, they can see child welfare specialists, they can go to a doctor um, instead of sitting in, in what are you know jails along the border.
1: Well, I'm wondering if you know, Jacob, can unaccompanied children affected by the climate crises actually apply for asylum?
3: They couldn't under Trump because President Trump uh, revoked, uh, shut down what was called the Central American Minors Program that allowed minors to apply in country uh, for refugee status or for asylum. And it was something that had been stood up by the Obama administration. It's something that the Biden administration has said they are going to restart. In fact, they've said they've already restarted it. It's a question of how fast they'll be able to stand it up. um, So that, so that young children, you know, to your point, don't have to make the journey one of the most dangerous journeys on planet earth across Mexico. Um, You know, having to use smugglers and cartels in order, you know, cross cartel held territory in order to get to the Southwest border, they'll be able to apply in Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador and skip the journey you know ultimately if the united states decides that 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 they are indeed legitimately seeking refugee status
1: you know jacob some republican politicians a lot of republican media for that matter they're saying that the biden policies have been maybe too permissive and that's what's driving this crisis but you've been on the ground so given your reporting how true would you say that is
3: yeah i think it's it's preposterous and it's political and it's reductive and it doesn't help um The border uh, is for everyone but unaccompanied children who are now allowed into the country under the reversal of a Trump administration policy that kept everyone out, and a limited number of families, uh, primarily in Texas, um, in the Rio Grande Valley, are the ones that are being led into the country. For everyone else, for most families, including the ones that I saw in Tijuana, who are not allowed in just a couple of weeks ago, and, and virtually all single adults are blocked from even declaring asylum and entering the country. And believe me, there are advocates and activists and you know, large organizations like the ACLU who want all of these folks to have legal pathways to seek asylum. Um, and indeed, asylum is an international right. But right now, the Biden administration is holding on to some of those Trump administration policies to keep people out. And so the idea that you're hearing from, from primarily Republican politicians that there is some sort of open border, a Biden open border policy is, it's just not based in the realities on the ground, and they're not being honest um, about who's getting into the country and who's being kept out. And most people, um, as you and I are talking, are still being kept out by the Biden administration.
1: That was NBC News and MSNBC correspondent Jacob Soboroff talking to us about some of the reasons why we, were, we are seeing so many unaccompanied minors showing up at the border. His book on the Trump administration's family separation policy is called Separated Inside a Family Tragedy. It was published last year. Jacob, thank you so much for making the time.
3: Thanks again.
1: This is Michelle Martin from NPR's Morning Edition. It's a fact. Local journalism fuels democracy. When local news thrives, so does civic participation. LAist and NPR are committed to keeping you and your community informed. But we can't do that without your support. Democracy needs you, and so do we. So please become a member now at laist.com give We're back with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Austin Cross, in for A. Martinez. Baking bread, starting a garden, sewing by hand, all kinds of do-it-yourself hobbies have boomed during the pandemic. I mean, my wife and I, we made kombucha, I started smoking meats. really interesting time. Well, a pair of researchers found these aren't just tasks to fill the time during lockdown. It's actually the increased threat of death. That's triggering behavior that's deeply ingrained in all of us. Behavior that more closely resembles how humans survive in small, isolated villages.
5: Living and working in the Maya village of Nabanchuk in Chiapas really inspired the research.
1: That's Patricia Greenfield, a distinguished professor of psychology at UCLA. She was there in 1969 and told us that...
5: In that village, lifespans were very short. Death was very salient. That dangerous life was connected to growing your own food, to making your own clothing, building your own houses.
1: And that survival instinct to hunker down in the face of danger and provide for oneself is what she saw emerge once the pandemic hit.
5: We were all isolated in small spaces. I saw these same behaviors pumping up in me and my family, and even the block where I live.
1: Enter Greenfield's grandson, yeah, grandson, Noah Evers. He decided to join her in exploring this phenomenon after kind of accidentally stumbling onto it while he was looking for some ideas for his social psychology final at Harvard.
4: I went to her and asked her if she knew any theories, and she, in fact, said, yes. Do you want to check out my theory? She had a theory of social change, cultural evolution, and human development. And so I looked into it. I really liked it. I was still a little skeptical of it, so I wanted to test it out. And then I realized that there's tons of natural language flowing through the internet constantly. And so I thought, well, what if you could measure these human interactions at a massive scale and look at what exactly people were talking about? And I really had enjoyed working with my grandmother's theory. And if it was true, I saw it as kind of the mechanism for how humans survive dangerous times.
1: Uh, Patricia, what have you found about how families are functioning now in the pandemic?
5: During the pandemic, families who are living in the same household are much closer. We found that there's greater appreciation of family and there's greater family interdependence. Families are eating together more. They're talking to each other more than before the pandemic. Children in the households are helping more. That is to say, parents are expecting more help from their children. So socialization has changed. And in fact, I've observed personally that children are responding by actually helping more with things like cooking and cleaning
1: from your standpoint as a psychologist, I mean, why does our behavior revert to this earlier time? It almost sounds to me like we're hardwired in a way.
5: In a sense that's true. We're hardwired to respond to certain conditions. When death, when mortality seems very real, those are the conditions under which these responses seem to happen. And I think the fact that it happens so quickly In the study I did with NOAA, we compared 70 days online after Trump's emergency declaration with the frequency of the same word 70 days before. So that was very fast. In our survey study, we put the surveys up in two states exactly 34 days, after the governor in that particular state had done his or her emergency declaration. So changes there had occurred in the first month.
1: I think it's so interesting that you can track these social patterns just by using social media and tracking what people are saying on the internet. Noah, what kind of tools were required to get that data?
4: The two main tools we used were analyzing Google Trends which is a free tool that Google offers to track what people are searching. And then we used another tool that uses artificial intelligence and a lot of web scraping and sophisticated technology to be able to look through Twitter, look through, if I remember right, it was hundreds of millions of forums and blogs. Like we used over half a billion word and phrase mentions in our analysis.
1: We're talking with UCLA psychology professor Patricia Greenfield and her research partner and grandson, Noah Evers. I guess I'm kind of curious in your opinion, Patricia, because I look at the way that we live our lives in this city, in America, and there are a lot of aspects of American culture that aren't really designed to make you happy. They're designed to keep you working. They keep you tired. People work long hours. They hardly get to see their families. And I'm wondering, is there anything gained in this time of the pandemic with all this time that people are spending with their families?
5: I really feel that what we have found is the silver lining of the COVID tragedy. And i felt for a long time, having spent so much time in collectivistic community and family-oriented cultures in West Africa— in the Maya village in uh, Chiapas, that we had gone too much in the other direction in response to our technology, in response to our material resources, in response to our higher levels of education. I think this has been a corrective for the people who could work at home. And I think that's a very important caveat because it's been a privilege really, to have this silver lining. And not everybody has been able to do this. And I very much hope that values like sacrifice and helping will continue to some extent, and that people will be able to spend more time with their families.
1: Well, Noah, how has this pandemic changed your relationship with your grandmother and how you collaborated on the study?
5: I thought collaborating
4: with my grandmother was a very special experience. Before, we had kind of blindly loved each other, as family members do. But through this experience, I got to not only blindly love my grandmother, but also respect her as an academic peer. I got to get to know her in her intellectual capacity. And the study was very intense. We both pulled several all-nighters over the course of the project. And I I really don't know many 80-year-olds who are pulling all-nighters. I remember one time, it was the last night before we had to submit the revisions for the study, and it was midnight, and I was bringing her my first coffee of the night. I brought her many more coffees after that. We were up until 10 or 11 the next morning. We pushed our minds to the limit. We, We were discussing into the early morning arguing back and forth over changes, making really good progress. It was super painful. It hurt my brain so much. But the next morning, I was thinking about it. And I was thinking, you know, probably 20 years from now, I'll look back on that. I'll think, what, what, what an incredible experience.
1: I love that. Well, that's Noah Evers and his grandmother, UCLA psychology professor Patricia Greenfield with us talking about their research. Thank you both so much for making the time today.
5: Thank you. Thank you.